0: Now, we have concluded the letters to the churches. I had no intention of preaching through the book of Revelation all the way. I would love to do that on some occasion, but that was not my plan. But there are a couple, perhaps three, texts to which I want to turn before we turn to other passages in God's Word while we are worshiping here in the gym and our nave is being renovated. So if you will, turn this morning to the 20th chapter of the last book of the Bible, Revelation. And we will read together verses 11 through 15. Will you pray with me? Our Father, as we turn to your word inerrant in the whole and in the part, your word authoritative in our lives, we pray that the Holy Spirit will be at work to take the word and to apply it to hearts and consciences who are here of your believing family gathered to worship your name, but also of those who are strangers to grace and who do not know you at all. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you will take the sermon and indeed make it a message to the hearts of those who hear a message from God himself as the word is read and expounded. Help those of us who preach to preach every sermon as if it could be our last, as dying men to dying men and women. Help us to proclaim your word in the knowledge that we will die, in the knowledge that Christ will come again and the knowledge that there is a day of judgment ahead, and the knowledge that Christ alone is the Savior of sinners. Hear us now, inhabit the praises of your people, and bless that your word, awesome that it is, may be doxology. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand as we read the word? Beginning in verse 11 of Revelation 20. This is the word of God. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. I'm preaching this morning on the day of judgment at the end of time. And as always when I preach, I am in blood earnest. Men may scoff at it, laugh at it, but this is God's word. Every human being's conscience speaks of a judgment to come. We have a tribunal in our hearts. The question that I want to focus on this morning is what will happen to the wicked on the day of judgment? I'm not focused upon the believer on the day of judgment, though we will stress that it will not be a day of condemnation for any believer in Christ, but our focus this morning is on what will happen to those who are outside of Christ on the day of judgment. Jonathan Edwards and the men of the Great Awakening have been mercilessly criticized for their preaching on the judgment of God. Sinners in the hands of an angry God is the chief target. Now, of course, Edwards preached more on heaven than he ever preached on hell. But what people know him for is his preaching on hell and on judgment. But you must understand that what Edwards recognized in his day was that in New England at the time, a sense of sin was all but dead. He was very wise to preach as he did. God used it to awaken a sense of sin again so that men and women and children could understand their need of Christ and their need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're here again in our own day. Our culture does not, by and large, have a sense of sin. We even... We, we don't even have a sense of shame anymore. And unhappily, that's influencing the church. And often the theme of God's justice, God's wrath, God's judgment is not preached. And consequently, many in the church, I am absolutely convinced, are sitting in pews who are unbelievers, who don't know Christ because they've never seen their need of Christ. They don't know that God is a holy God. They don't know that they are sinners deserving of God's wrath, and in need of the only Savior, Jesus Christ, who can redeem us from God's condemnation. The purpose of preaching the judgment of God is not first and foremost to frighten people into hell. Only the Holy Spirit can open a heart and draw a person into the kingdom, although it is a foolish thing for a sinner not to fear hell. The purpose is that we might see the holiness of God, the justice of God, and see ourselves against the backdrop of this holiness so that each of us also sees his or her need of the gospel of sovereign free grace. Now, the text we've read together this often read but rarely preached text is about the judgment. It's very easy to understand. The first thing is this. The wicked will stand before the righteous judge. Indeed, we all will be there on that day, but I'm focused primarily upon the wicked. Verse 11, we read Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. There's the throne of God, representing his absolute sovereignty, his absolute justice. Psalm 103 tells us the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. The Lord is king and we have here in this passage a reference to that great courtroom scene that was read by Pastor MacDonald earlier in the service from Daniel chapter 7. The throne also points to God's majesty. It is a great white throne. The great white throne, Thomas Boston the Puritan said, the most glorious earthly throne is a seat on a dunghill. Never had a judge such a throne. Never had a throne such a judge to sit on it. God is there, Christ, the Son of God, clothed in majesty and strength. We read of that majesty in 1 Timothy 4.16, that God dwells in light that no man can approach to whom no man has seen or can see. We would be completely dazzled by one ray of the glory of God. One old divine is certainly right when he says that we trifle with God if we do not know how overwhelming the views and thoughts of God's majesty and glory are when he is not seen upon his throne of grace. Yes, he is majestic there as well, but how awesome to see Jesus Christ sitting on the throne of judgment. Earth and heaven, we are told in the text, flee away from his presence. Apocalyptic language representing the preparation for the rebirth of the world, but it also shows his glory. Who can stand in the presence of this almighty king, this awesome judge? And who is the judge? The august, exalted, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You recall recently I preached from Acts 17, and that the Apostle Paul says in Acts 17, 31, that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus once stood before a tribunal to deliver us from condemnation at this tribunal. In Revelation chapter 20, there he will be with the marks of his wounds for all to see. But for those outside of Christ on this day, the lamb shall roar as a lion. The most awesome consideration of all, the one who is the redeemer and savior of sinners is the judge of all who do not trust in him. And so your relationship with him will make all the difference in how you view this message this morning. Every august storm should remind us of the day that is coming when the one who holds the storm of judgment in his sovereign hand will exercise that judgment and no sinner will escape. You've seen some of these great storms recently, have you not, as we live here in central Florida? Back in May I was privileged to preach at the Banner of Truth conference. It was in Pennsylvania. And uh, I had to preach on one given morning and I was staying in this dorm. It was on a college campus uh, way way over here. The chapel was was a great distance away. And so I had reviewed my text, prayed, I was ready to go to get there just in time to preach. Walked out the door and the storm came. The heavens opened. And there was a drenching rain. I preached, actually, soaking to the skin. But as I went there, there was thunder and lightning all around. And when I stood before the men, I reminded them of Jonathan Edwards, who says in his personal narrative that before he came to faith in Christ, the storm was very frightening to him because it reminded him of the justice and judgment of God. But after he came to faith in Christ, the storm was a delight to him because he saw in it the judgment and justice of God, but his viewpoint had been changed. And he says, absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. Now that's what the new birth does. It changes our perspective on who God is, even on the judgment and justice of God. We view grace and mercy and justice differently than we did before coming to know him. When Jesus Christ comes again, He will not come to bleed, He will come to reign. Lo, He comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain, thousand, thousand saints attending, swell the triumph of His train, hallelujah, Jesus comes and comes to reign. And everyone knows that this day is coming. Conscience is an indicator that there is a day of judgment. Eternity is written on everyone's heart. Conscience says there is a law and a lawgiver. Conscience points to a higher tribunal. Every time someone says, I ought and does not do what he ought, then he knows within his heart that there is a judgment coming. And is there no future justice to be meted out upon the transgressors of God's law? And to vindicate the poor people of God who have suffered on this earth? And his word tells us in no uncertain terms. Truth be known, this is why men despise the word and have raised sophisticated objections against it. Sinners suppress the truth of the judgment to come, but it will come. It is inexorable. Nothing and no one can stop it. Who can begin to describe the fear and the woe of that day? We read in Revelation 6, 15 and 16, for the judgment is mentioned many times in the book. We read there of the judgment. that is found in his word, read and proclaimed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the Lord Jesus will come. The avalanche of his judgment will come. There will be no more gospel proclamation, no overtures of mercy. Eternity begins, as one of our old divines says, eternity begins, the eternal funeral of the soul. Second thing in this text. No one will be exempt from the judgment. Will you look again at verses 12 and 13? And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done." Even those physically dead are raised. There is one general judgment to come. Keep your finger here and turn to John's Gospel, chapter 5, so that you see for yourselves the words of our Lord Jesus. In which in John 5, verses 28 and 29. I'll actually begin in verse 25. John five twenty-five. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here. of judgment. So the man- manner of death makes no difference. Even though I do not believe that Christians should cremate, which is a story for another time, it doesn't matter what's happened to the body, whether there's been burial, whether there's been cremation, whether one has been in the ocean and has completely dissolved. The one who created the atomic structure, the molecular structure of the body, will have no problem raising the dead to life on the day of judgment. So you may refuse the general call of the gospel that goes out. In hearing that general call, you may refuse to come to the throne of grace unless God make it effectual and then no one can resist. You cannot refuse to come, however, to the throne of judgment. Verse 12 tells us the great and the small will be there. Samuel Davies, the 18th century father of Southern Presbyterianism in America, spoke movingly to unbelievers in that day. He said, "'Let us now enter upon the majestic scene, but alas, what images shall I use to represent it? Nothing that we have ever seen, nothing that we have ever heard, nothing that has ever happened on the stage of time can furnish us with proper illustrations. All is low and groveling, all is faint and obscure, that ever the sun shone upon when compared with the grand phenomena of that day, and we are so accustomed to low and little objects that it is impossible we should ever raise our thoughts to a suitable pitch of elevation. Ere long we shall be amazed spectators of these majestic wonders, and our eyes and tears will be our instructors.' But now it is necessary we should have such ideas of them as may affect our hearts and prepare us for them. Let us therefore present to our view... Those representations which divine revelation, our only guide in this case, gives us of the person of the judge and the manner of his appearance, of the resurrection of the dead and the transformation of the living, of the universal convention of all the sons of men before the supreme tribunal, of their separation to the right and left hand of the judge according to their characters, of the judicial process itself, of the decisive sentence of its execution and the conflagration of the world thirdly those judged will be judged justly again that's the purpose of verse 12 and I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and the books were opened then another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done it is all according to God's justice justice is a moral attribute of God Without it, He would no more be God than He would be if He were not love. God is love, but God also is justice. God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. These are His attributes. And so He is just, and the books are opened. Again, reflecting the judgment scene of Daniel chapter 7, the court sat, the books were opened, and it speaks of accuracy. But it also speaks according to verse 15, of those not in the book of life. That book that registers those purchased for God with Christ's own blood, they will escape the lake of fire because they are in union with Jesus Christ by faith. But others who are not in Christ will not escape the judgment. It is a judgment according to what is written in the books. It is a judgment according to works. This means that the principle observed in the day of justice is God's absolute holiness? We read in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, the Apostle Paul saying, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It is a righteous judgment. Christ will judge with perfect integrity and absolute moral purity and complete holiness and with spotless judgment, no fudging. Nothing will be hidden, even our thoughts are known to Him. No work of an unbeliever is righteous. Do you realize that? He can feed the world and in God's eyes it's not righteous because it is not done from a heart that is in union with Jesus Christ that desires His glory. We read in Romans chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. By nature, we do nothing that is good in the sight of God. So it's usual when I'm conversing with someone about this that the question comes, Well, pastor, what about those who have never heard? And so we talk about Saudi Arabia, or we talk about Iran, and we talk about people who have never heard. Well, the Apostle Paul answers that in the book of Romans. He speaks of the work of the law written upon the Gentiles' hearts. They're judged according to what they know. But I want to ask you to set that question aside, because that's not the question for you this morning, because you and I have heard. That's the issue. We have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I doubt there's a person here who has not heard that Jesus is the Savior of sinners. Let that be your concern. There will be no terrors for the believer in Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But I must be plain. There is no mercy on that day. There is condemnation and wrath for those who reject his gospel. Which leads to the fourth thing we find. The final verdict will be pronounced. You see, this and other passages, such as Matthew 25, represent a sorting out. It will be a day that is public. Today we see injustice exalted, and impiety triumph, but not in that day. There will be a lake of fire. You must be either in Christ or out of Christ, a believer or an unbeliever. There's no in between. The wicked will have their place with the devils. And you say, I don't wish to imagine it. But you must be there. You cannot avoid being there. And so think upon it now. Think upon it in faith and repentance toward Christ. Because of the finality of the judgment. You see, there will be no second opportunity... You deceive yourself if you think, after death, God is going to give me another opportunity. There's nothing in Scripture to indicate that, everything in Scripture to indicate otherwise. There will be no purgatory so that I purge my sins through some kind of atonement over a period of time and then I'm led into heaven. There's no purgatory. There will be no annihilation which is a very popular view in the church today. God is just going to annihilate the wicked so that they're not here anymore. Jesus speaks of the worm that dies not and the fire that is not quenched. The scriptures teach the eternal punishment of the wicked. And we can look at passage after passage, but if there were no passage that was explicit, it still would be taught on the basis of God's attributes, God's justice, His just nature, his infinitely just nature, demands the eternal punishment of the wicked. So today, universalism has again become popular. Rob Bell's popular book, Love, Wins, and Other Errors, denounce hell. And it leads to a reworking of the doctrine of the atonement and other damnable error. But the reality of hell is anchored in God's just and unchangeable nature. Klaus Schilder made the observation... If God did not do this, he would be a covenant breaker. In the day you eat it, you will surely die. So this is not divine vindictiveness. This is not cruelty. It is justice. And in that day, condemned sinners will acknowledge that the reason for condemnation is found within their own hearts. They did not seek God while he may be found. They did not obey the appointed means of grace to believe and repent. So we think of hell as a separation from God, and we are separated from his favorable presence. But in another sense, it is is the presence of God. Turn to chapter 14 of Revelation, verses 10 and 11. I'll begin with verse 9. And another angel of third followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur, notice this, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. It is in the presence of the Lamb that the wicked are punished. And so you must imagine that day. Can you not see that vast multitude? Jesus Christ sets his sheep on his right hand, the goats on the left There will be no excuses on that day. All are naked to his all-seeing eye. Gifts, fame, beauty, puny human intelligence, they make no difference. Wealth is worthless. Human pomp and circumstance is no more. There is none to shield the wicked. The chaff is assigned to unquenchable fire. And only those washed in the precious blood of the Lamb, who are clothed with the judicial righteousness that Christ wove upon the cross, who plead His merit alone, will hear Him say, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And for them, all tears will be wiped away. Now let me do this. Let's take the themes that we find here and let me press home some really significant thoughts. What grandeur is in this passage, the Lord will return as a thief in the night when men are crying peace and safety. The scriptures say, watch for you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. God hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And so it is my prayer that the Holy Spirit will apply to each heart according to our needs. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So let me begin by addressing those in our midst who are unbelievers. I cannot help but think that in a congregation like this, though you hear the word over and over, there are some who are yet to be converted. And let me say that God says He does not delight in the death of the wicked, And so may this sermon call you to Christ. You will undoubtedly remember this sermon on the day of Assize. If you do not trust in Christ, those who suppress the conscience and who despise the Bible will not do so in that day. So I'm calling upon you to look to the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Look to the Lamb who was slain. May no one in the hearing of my voice Here on that day, depart ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. On that day, the world will be set ablaze. And as John L. Girardeau put it, Earth utters her expiring groans and rumbling detonations from her deepest caverns and reiterated thunders of mighty explosions seem the volleying discharges of God's artillery at the funeral of a world. It's penal justice. Why will you perish? If you're an unbeliever, you have no security against that day. God's punishment is infinite. It is eternal. And have you ever stopped to think it is proportionate to his love? God's love is infinite. But his justice is proportionate to his love. And his justice is infinite. And so I plead with you to think, if you are an unbeliever on that day, you will have heard the gospel and refused the gospel, and the door of mercy is opened when the gospel is proclaimed. You've trampled the blood of Christ underfoot. On that day, there will be no more Bibles, no more gospel proclamation. All of that will have passed. The Redeemer of sinners himself will pronounce the doom of those who reject the gospel, and what account will you give on that day? You had no fear of God before your eyes, but you will on that day. Now man judges according to the outward appearance, God according to the heart. So how pale will your face be when called to give an account? When all of the heart is exposed, everything in the heart is exposed. God has the right And God has the power to judge. And the judgment will be open, public, solemn. There will be no mercy when he proclaims in strict justice, depart from me into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Some of you are extremely careful to plan. You plan your day. You work with a calendar. Some of you have a will. Some of you have... um, Uh, An insurance policy in the event of your death to provide for your family. Uh, Some of you um, are prepared with funeral arrangements. But you've given no thought to where you'll spend eternity. None at all. But what of the redeemed? The believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The redeemed have trusted Christ as our penal substitute, the one who bore the wrath of God in our place. We heard and believed the message by the grace of God. We heard the minister preach, how precious is your immortal soul. God is not free to act unjustly. He must punish sin. Sin against an infinite God must be infinite in duration. But the redeemed have trusted in Jesus Christ who shed his blood on the cross And that meets our need because it answers to eternal justice. The sacrifice of Christ has infinite value and therefore it can cover my infinite debt. It covers my sin. And from the moment we trusted in Christ, our condemnation was once and for all removed. We have ever since come to a different throne. We have come to a throne of grace where our great high priest dispenses sovereign free mercy. Robert Trail, Scottish preacher of the past, said this, Justice reigns in hell and grace reigns in heaven. So all will find that come to heaven and so must they all know and believe that would be there. Sinners that are for merit will find it sadly in hell. Men's merit makes hell. Christ's merit makes heaven. So if you're one of those who believes that you somehow can merit acceptance with God by your work or service to others or sentimental thoughts, set it aside. The scriptures teach that every one of us is born a sinner and we continue to acquire in life, in addition to that original sin, our sinful hearts' actions against God, and we are meriting God's infinite, eternal displeasure. That's what I, by nature, am owed by justice. So come as you are. Don't think, I'll clean myself up first, you can't do it. Come right to Jesus Christ, just as you are, in all of your sin, come to Him, confess your sin to Him, believe in Christ, cast your works aside, and believe in the One whose work on the cross can save you from your sin. And there is comfort here for the believer too. As we look ahead to the judgment, of course, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and even the believer in Christ, though not fearing condemnation, nonetheless, there is an awesome consideration that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But there's comfort here also. How often does injustice prevail in a fallen world? And we begin to cry out, Lord, where is, where is your justice? Show your justice. Yes, we cry, show your grace, show your mercy. But we also see the injustices and because the Holy Spirit is now conforming our hearts to God's own heart, to so our Heavenly Father's heart, we also begin to have hearts that love justice. And so the Heidelberg Catechism asks this question. It's Lord's Day 19. How does Christ return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? The answer is this. In all my distress and persecution, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await as judge, the very one who has already stood trial in my place before God and so has removed the whole curse from me, all his enemies and mine. He will condemn to everlasting punishment, but me and all his chosen ones, he will take along with him into the joy and glory of heaven. And so I can say to you, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, being treated unjustly, perhaps somehow the sermon will reach some Christian being mistreated in Iran or by ISIS And in worldly terms, they see no escape from the injustice. A day of judgment is coming. A day of justice is coming. And that is a real comfort for true believers in Jesus Christ. That brings to mind the words of John Flavel, the Puritan, who said, The enemies under his feet will not destroy the children in his arms. So, the redeemed in the new heavens and the new earth, which, by the way, will be next week's sermon, you see the balance? So, the redeemed in the new heavens and the new earth will be taken all the way to our heavenly home and we will ever sing, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And so we will fall down and worship. Death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire, our text says in verse 14. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. Those who are in Christ cannot know the second death, and the second death means eternal punishment due to to sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And the day of condemnation, get this, this is my last sentence, don't miss it. And the day of condemnation, the day of condemnation for the wicked will be the wedding day of the church. Amen.